How many of you are tired of the rain? <laughs> Few of you. You know, I've determined I'm not going to complain about the rain because in the summertime we'll be complaining about the drought. <clears throat> so I worked with a guy in the oil fields out in West Texas that used to say this. Some people would complain even if you hung them with a new rope. <laughs> Never forgot that phrase. Loved that phrase. All right, let's do a quick, we got lots to cover this evening, so let's see if we can do this recap really quickly. This is what we covered last week. Uh, we talked about Jesus healing Bartimaeus. Remember, Jesus is moving down the road towards Jerusalem. Lots of crowd with him, big crowd, lots of noise, lots of chaos. And Bartimaeus was a blind man beside the road. Uh, other, the other gospels don't give us his name necessarily, but, uh, but one of them does. And they tells us that Bartimaeus finds out that the noise he's hearing and the crowd that's coming his way is because Jesus is there. And he starts hollering at the top of his lungs for Jesus to heal him. And the crowd shushes him and tries to keep him quiet. And we don't exactly know why, but we do know when Jesus stops and says, call him to me, then the crowd flipped. The crowd changed their tune, and all of a sudden now it was they're all eager to have Bartimaeus come to see Jesus, probably because they figured Jesus would heal him, and nothing raises the ruckus in a crowd like a good healing. I mean, they were following Jesus because of the miracles he was doing anyway, so they're thinking maybe they're going to get to see another one. And uh, Jesus, Jesus asked Bartimaeus specifically what he wants him to do, which seems like a silly question because he's blind. What else would he want Jesus to do for him? But Jesus still wants him to spell that out specifically. And we talked about how easy it is to throw up general prayers because they're not that risky, but to throw up specific prayers is much more risky. And uh, we talked about that, and Bartimaeus says specifically what he wants. He wants his eyesight back, and Jesus restores his sight and then it's interesting that Bartimaeus doesn't go home to show his family or to see his kids or his grandkids and to exercise that new sight he has. He follows Jesus instead, which was a big, big deal. And then we talked about another man by the side of the road where Bartimaeus was beside the road hollering at the top of his lungs. Zacchaeus was beside the road and never said a sound, never made a sound, never said a word. And Zacchaeus, every time I mention that, I know you're out there singing the song in your head about Zacchaeus being a wee little man. But Zacchaeus was more than a wee little man. He was more than a short-statured guy. He was an extortioner, and he was a profiteer, and he was making money off of his fellow citizens, his fellow Jews, and he was wringing the cash out of them because Scripture says that he was not only a tax collector, he was the chief tax collector. So he was taking a cut off of everybody else. And it says he was rich. So, I mean, it's one thing to be, have somebody be taking money from you that he doesn't need to be taking, but now he's rich over it. He's not a well-liked man. And so when Jesus is coming by, he wants to get a look at Jesus, but he's short and he can't get through the crowd and the crowd hates him so much, they're not about to let him get through. So he goes up the road, seeing where Jesus is going, climbs up in a tree to get an eyeball, to get a sight on Jesus. He doesn't holler out at Jesus. He doesn't even let Jesus know he's there. But when Jesus gets to the place where he is, he looks at, up at him, which is interesting for Zacchaeus because most people look down at him. But Jesus looks up at him and says, hey, I want to go to your house, which is not something he expected because no one other than his fellow tax collectors wanted to go to his house. They all hated him. They wouldn't be caught dead in his house. And yet here is Jesus, this miracle worker, this rabbi, this teacher who's saying, I want to hang out at your house. And so they go to Zacchaeus' house, and while they're there, Zacchaeus makes this statement, and he says, half of everything I have I'm going to give to the poor. And he says, and if I have wronged anybody, if I've taken money from anybody I didn't need to take, then I will return it fourfold. And you know everybody he had taken money from, he had wronged that way. And so this is an incredible statement. You know, he gave away half of his goods to the poor. Probably close to half of what he has left has to go to paying off this claim, this commitment that he's made. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. But we talked about the fact that salvation didn't come to the house because he was giving his stuff away. 
when Jesus said salvation today, salvation has come to this house, that was, it's already happened. But Zacchaeus had never done any of that stuff. So the salvation that he was talking about was not buying his way into salvation, if you will. It was the fact that he had changed. His life had changed. His outlook had changed. That was the evidence that salvation had come to the house. And Zacchaeus, I feel certain Zacchaeus went and followed through with all those commitments. But salvation didn't come because he gave half of his stuff away. Or because he gave four times of what he extorted from people. Salvation came because his heart and mind and outlook had been completely changed. And that only happens when Jesus comes to visit and then comes to stay. So, and then the last one we talked about was the parable of the ten minus. There was this master who was called away because this king was going to make him a king over the area in which he lived. So, he was going away to receive a kingship. And before he left, he called ten of his servants together, gave them each one mina, which was three months' worth of wages. And he said, while I'm gone, engage this money. In other words, put it to work, do something with it, invest, make it happen. And he goes away, and while he's going away, the citizens in the area want to try to stop him. They want to send a delegation to this king who's going to give him a kingship and try to stop that. And... That's all we hear in the middle of the story, and then it reverts back. They, they were not successful because the master comes back, and he is now the king. And he calls his ten servants together and says, show me what you've done. What do you got? And one servant says, okay, you gave me this one minus. I've gained ten more. So now he has 11 minus, roughly three years' worth of wages out of three months. And he commends him, says, well done. You've been faithful in a little bit. I'm going to put you over ten cities. Calls another guy, what'd you do with your mina? He said, I put it to work, now I have five more minas. So now he's had six. Same commendation for that man, and he gets rule over five cities. Then the third man he calls, asks him what he does, and the third man pulls out this piece of cloth, unwraps it, and there's the single mina, and he gives it to the, to the master. And the master is not pleased. He didn't invest it. He said, I know you're a harsh man. And... Uh, and he was afraid that he would lose it, that his investments wouldn't work out well. He was afraid that it wouldn't happen well and that he'd be in trouble with the master. So he didn't do anything with it, but hand it back to him. And the master was miffed, to say the least. And he said, you could have at least put it in the bank where it would have drawn interest. And he, he, he punishes the man. And we talked about the fact that one of the things that keeps us from doing what our master tells us to do is fear. Fear that we won't be able to do it. Fear that it won't turn out right. And so we have all that, this stuff that we've received from the master. Re material resources, gifts, skills, talents, interests, passions. We have all this stuff we received from our master, but we don't put it to use for him out of fear. And so this parable is a, a big warning to us in that area. All right, and then we hit some takeaways. We said if, if you're in the story of blind Bartimaeus, would you have been Bartimaeus? Would you have been the people who were trying to get him to be still? Or would you have been the people who were bringing him to Jesus? All of us fit in that story in one of those characteristics, sometimes in multiple of those characteristics. But it's good when you read Scripture to ask yourself, where do I fit in this story, if I'm really honest? And then we did this takeaway. God's invention, intervention should prompt our devotion, should prompt our action. When Bartimaeus was healed, he didn't say, hey, let me go back and see all those people I haven't been able to see. He said, I'm going with you. God intervened in his life, and he responded with devotion and with action. And then there was this one. Always remember, Jesus is interested in the people we ignore. Zacchaeus. Jesus is always interested in the people we're not, or we ignore, or we don't like. And you guys may be way more spiritual than I am, but there's people in my life I just don't like, okay? Uh, and Jesus is just as interested in them as he is in me, and we always have to be reminded of that. When you truly encounter Jesus, you'll either hold on to the things in your life or you'll let it go. But there's really no in-between. 
This is what happens with Zacchaeus. When he really encounters Jesus, he lets it go, just like the Disney song. And, uh, and, and if you've heard that song once, you've probably heard it way too many times, the Let It Go song. Ah. But, but this is how it works when you encounter Jesus. You either hold on to your stuff tighter or you let it go. And uh, what choice you make kind of tells you how, how fulfilling a life you're going to live. Then this takeaway, God promises, prom, excuse me, God's promises do not come with a completion date. Just his word that it will happen. Just his word that it will happen. His promises do not come with a completion date, but just his promise that it will happen. When he talked about the coming of the kingdom. He didn't say exactly when that was going to happen. He just promised that it was going to. Right? This one. You've been given resources by God that he expects you to put to work for him. Do not let fear keep you from doing what you need to do. What have you got to be afraid of anyway? You might say, I mean, what's the worst that could happen? I could die. You're going to die anyway. Right? If that's the worst that can happen, you've already, God's already got that covered for you. So what do you have to lose? I remember when I first started doing counseling and I was seeing a, uh, a supervisor. And, you know, when you first start doing counseling, you're, it's kind of scary. And, and so I was talking to the supervisor and I said, my biggest fear is that I will mess somebody up. And they looked at me and said, they were messed up when, you came, when they came to you. And I went, oh, yeah. So, when we let fear stop us from doing what God's called us to do, it's, we really don't even have a good excuse. You know, I may, I may not have as much money as I need. Well, your father owns all the money, so you got that covered. They may not like me. Well, you know what? There's a bunch of people that don't like you, whether you like it or not. So, one more is not going to hurt. There's always reasons, fearful reasons we have for not doing what God wants us to do, but they are never, ever good enough. And then this takeaway, and we'll get into something new. The blessings come from the effort, not the results. The blessings come from the efforts, not the results. Obedience is its own reward. The servants who got the mina, they all got the same one mina. One came back with 10. The other only came back with five, but they were blessed because of their efforts, not their results. Many of you have told your kids this when they've failed at a sport or failed a grade or didn't do as well as they want to. We've often tell our kids, did you do your best? And if they did, and you know they did, you say that's enough. Obedience is its own reward. We are blessed for our effort, not for our results. Okay, all right, so let's get into something new tonight while we still can and cover a little. Let's start here. The Sanhedrin plots against Jesus and Lazarus. We are finally going to get Jesus to Jerusalem and the final week of his life. We have been working through these Gospels for over a year. Now, this is like session number 61 or 62. So it's been well over a year and we are just now getting to the final week of Jesus's life. And he's going to reach Jerusalem for several weeks now. He's just been on the road. We're going to get him there this evening. We're going to spend a lot of time in the gospel of John, not all of it, but a lot of time in the gospel of John, because the gospel of John the majority of the Gospel of John deals with the last week of Jesus' life. You get a lot of info there. Now, the other Gospels deal with this also, but uh, the Gospel of John really covers it well. So we're going to be spending a lot of time there. It's almost time for Passover. So that's kind of a really quick setup. Look at John chapter 11 and look at verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. The Passover was at hand. Uh, what is the Passover? Let's start there. What's the Passover that they're going up to? Remember we celebrate when Moses poured blood on the door, on the door 
frames in each of the to keep the angel of death from killing the firstborn? Exactly. It was one of three annual feasts where if you were a Jew, you had to go back to Jerusalem. And this feast celebrated their release from bondage in Egypt under Moses. Remember when the very last plague was the angel of death comes through and every home that did not have the lamb's blood on the doorpost, the firstborn in that house died. And that was the, the night that the death angel passed over them because of the sacrifice of the lamb and the blood on the door. It was also the night of their deliverance where they were set free. So this is a big deal for them. This goes way back to the very beginning of their roots as a nation. And so, and like I said, it's one of three festivals of feasts where people would come back to Jerusalem and travel back to there. Uh, it's interesting that they would celebrate their freedom from slavery, but they were still under Roman rule. Now, why bring that up? Just because I like odd things, I think. But think about it. They're celebrating their freedom and they're still under Roman rule. Isn't that like how it should be for us? We still are in this world. We still struggle with sin. We still struggle with all this. But shouldn't we be celebrating our freedom? Well, it's just a question. But, and wouldn't we be better off if we did more celebrating of our freedom and less complaining about our obstacles? The Roman government was a huge obstacle to the people, and yet they still set aside a time to celebrate the Passover. And one of the customs was that, that Jews would ritualistically cleanse themselves in ceremonial pools and, and, and prior to entering the Passover meal and eating the Passover meal. So look at verse 56. They, meaning the crowds, they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another, as he stood in the temple, or excuse me, as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Now listen, just hear the buzz going on. Hear, hear the water cooler talk. Listen to the rumors. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, that he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So there's this speculation and this tension going on. Jesus has not even walked into Jerusalem yet, but the word is he's on his way. There's a big crowd. They know he's on his way. They want to know what's going to happen. Will he come into Jerusalem or will he stay away? When he comes in, what's going to happen? And then on top of that, the religious leaders have already instructed anybody that if you see him, you need to come and report it to us. So there's this big intrigue going on. And, and it is it's just a buzz with tension and speculation. Jerusalem was a bit of a powder keg at this time. It's going to get worse. But it was a bit of a powder keg at this time waiting to blow. So next, John gives us an account of, Jesus, of Mary anointing Jesus' feet. John jumps into that account. We're going to skip over that now. And uh, just to keep the continuity of Jesus arriving into Jerusalem, we'll come back to that later in the timeline. Because remember, we're working a harmony of the Gospels. We're trying to do this in chronological order. And the writers of the Gospel are not always so concerned about chronology as they are about telling the point that they want to make. So we're going to skip over that. We're coming back to that. That fits later in the timeline. But look at Romans, excuse me, John chapter 12. Look at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Who lived in Bethany? Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. That was kind of his base of operations when he was area, in the area. He stayed at their house in Bethany. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany six days before the Passover, where Lazarus was and whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now skip down to verse 9. When the large crowds of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. Okay, so we go through these verses so you can know what the feel was and what was going on in the time. 
Word had gotten out that Jesus was at Bethany. And he was at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So large crowds came to see him. But not only to see Jesus, but to see Lazarus. Why Lazarus? Jesus raised him from the dead. Wouldn't you want to talk to somebody who came back from the dead? Wouldn't you want to see that? They did too. Who wouldn't want to see somebody to come back from the dead? But Lazarus had been raised from the dead for some time now. That had happened a while back, right? So why were there still large crowds wanting to come and see Lazarus? I'm sorry? Say it again. I'm, I'm having trouble. Still news. Yeah, still news. I mean, anybody that gets raised from the dead is going to be news, you bet. Remember what's going on in Jerusalem at this time. People are coming from all over. There, there are newcomers pouring into the city. It's like Master's Week, okay? This is what's going on at Passover time. It's like Master's Week. And so, yeah, the people that lived in the area, yeah, they'd kind of gotten used to, yeah, there's Lazarus. And that, you know, that old raised from the dead thing probably kind of wore off on them. But you got people coming in from all over who had heard this story, and they've never seen Lazarus before. So this is like news to them. Again, it's like people who come into Augusta and they want to see the masters because they've never seen it before. This is big news. So all of these newcomers are beginning to flock into Bethany just to get a look at Lazarus. But not everybody was happy about Lazarus, which seems weird. You raise a guy from the dead, everybody should be happy, but not everyone was. Look at John chapter 12. Look at verse 10. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. I mean, it seems kind of rotten. You just got raised from the dead. Now somebody's trying to kill you again? You know, that just seems bad. But they wanted to put him to death as well. Here's why. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Lazarus was a liability he just was a liability. How could you put somebody to death when standing right behind, beside him is the guy you raised from the dead? He's just, it's too much proof. And so they've got to get rid of Lazarus too. He was, he was offering up too much proof that Jesus was who he said he was. And now all these newcomer Jews that are filing into Jerusalem, now they're coming to see Lazarus and they're beginning to follow Jesus. So the religious leader saying this, this has just gotten out of hand, and they had to get rid of him too, okay? And so that brings us finally to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, all right? And so we're going to cover this. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus had left Lazarus' house. He was on the move to Jerusalem. Look at Luke. We're going to go over to Luke now. Tonight we're going to be jumping back and forth a little bit, so get used to it. We'll be in Mark probably also. But go to Luke chapter 19, and we're going to pick up the story in Luke 19. As soon as I can find Luke 19. It was there the last time I looked. There it is. Luke 19. We're going to be in verse 28. Let's start reading there. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, re remember, Jerusalem sits on a high point. It sets up on a kind of a small mountain. So if you went to Jerusalem, you went up to Jerusalem. It's not like going, going up north. It's not a directional thing. It's an elevation thing. So he, going up to Jerusalem, verse 29. When he drew near to Bethpage and at Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where, one, uh, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it, bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say the Lord has need of it. Verse 32, so those who were sent away, excuse me, those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying it, the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? Just like Jesus had said. And they said, the Lord has need of it, just like Jesus had told them to say. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. 
And he rode along, as he rode along, they spread their coats on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Key phrase, they're praising God for all the mighty works they had seen. They're following Jesus because what he had been doing. Verse 38, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So let's stop there. So here's the picture. Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Olives. He's going down into the valley. He's getting ready to turn back up and go up into the the city of Jerusalem. And crowds are reaching a critical mass, not just in size, but in emotion. And I don't know if you've ever been in a crowd before that has just run away with itself, but it can be kind of spooky. When I was a teenager, this will date me, and I'll just lose some of you on this, so just hang on here with me. But when I was a teenager, I uh, got out of school, with my parents' permission, and went to a concert to see... Oh, gosh, who was it? Um, Bob Seger, Wishbone Ash, and Aerosmith. Ah, yep, see, some of you get it. And we got there early. We were like at the stadium before anybody was there. We camped out all day. I was right up against the door, so when it opened, I could go in. And this was before, this was when it was still a free-for-all for seating. I got to that concert, watched, that, watched Aerosmith with both elbows on the stage. That's how close I was. But throughout the day, the crowd to get in got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And they started pressing up against the doors, of which I was against the door. And they pressed and pressed. And when the doors finally opened, I almost got trampled. If it hadn't have been for a big guy friend of mine who reached and grabbed me and pulled me through... I would have gotten trampled in this crowd. Crowds can be a scary thing. And so as Jesus is hitting the valley and getting ready to come up, the crowd has reached critical mass. There's the crowd that's been following him, the crowd that's pouring out of Jerusalem. And not only is the size critical, they are just overblown with excitement. I mean, they are just running away with themselves. And so now Luke gives a lot of time and a lot of words, like we read, to this idea that Jesus is on this donkey. I mean, Luke spends a lot of time talking about how this donkey gets into the picture and where it fits. Uh, Why is the donkey so important? It's a lot of words to spend on a donkey, don't you think? Yes. Pardon? Pardon? So it was part of kind of keeping him elevated so he, wasn't, he, so he didn't get trampled by the crowd. Could be. But the donkey is what the king will uh, rode into town after uh, uh, victory. It was not a beautiful horse. Right. So after a victory, a king would ride a donkey into, back into the city. Okay. Any other ideas? Yeah. Yeah. Sit on a horse that's never been sat on before or caught and be ridden in without incident. That would have to be a God thing. Yeah, yeah, because if the animal has never been ridden before, they tend to not be that easy to ride. Yeah. It's just interesting that we've been following Jesus for a year now, right? He has walked everywhere he went. So why a donkey now? I mean, he's right there at the gate. It's not like he's so tired he can't get to Jerusalem. So why? And, but here's the key thing. Hold your finger there once you go left back into the Old Testament and go to Zechariah. If you don't know where it's at, I can't help you because I don't know either. You just have to look in the table of contents. But it's not very far into the Old Testament when you're going from back to front, okay? So... Find Zechariah. If you find Malachi, that's the last book of the Old Testament. The very next one after, before that is Zechariah. So find Zechariah and look at Zechariah 9. 
Zechariah 9. We'll start in verse 9. Here's why the donkey's so important. Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Look at the next verse. He will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's what's going on. When they see Jesus, they've seen all these miracles he's done. He's even raised somebody from the dead. They, they see him now fulfilling this prophecy of the Messiah. And remember, they believe that the Messiah is a political Messiah. They believe that the Messiah is going to come in and give back rule and reign to Jerusalem. Kick the Romans out and they will become the center of everything political. This is what they believe. So when they see Jesus sitting on this donkey and moving into Jerusalem, they think this is it. They had, they had memorized this prophecy. They knew this prophecy. And so Jesus and the writer Luke, they're both making sure that no one misses the fact that Jesus is making a messianic claim here. I mean, Jesus knew the response if he did this, and he did it anyway. Why? Because he wanted to stake claim that he truly is the Messiah. And so as Jesus comes down to the valley from the Mount of Olives, prepares to start up the hill, the crowds are beginning to reach this critical mass. And Luke tells us the people were chanting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, Gospel of John tells us something that, that Luke doesn't tell us. Gospel of John tells us that they're chanting Hosanna along with that. Anybody know what Hosanna means? Hmm? It means God help us, God save us. Yeah. You know, the first time I came in, in contact with that word Hosanna, some of you may get this. It was, I, I didn't give my life to Christ until I was 22. But as a teenager, I encountered this word Hosanna. You know where? Musical, Jesus Christ Superstar. It's a big song in that musical. And I always scratched my head saying, what is a Hosanna? You know? This is what it is. This is what it is. And, but both of these come from somewhere else. Now, again, keep your hand in Luke, but I want you to go to Psalm. Psalm 118. About the middle of the Bible, you should find it. It's just right before Psalm 119, if that helps you any. Just trying to be of help. And Psalm 119 is a long one, so if you find it, you may still have to turn a few pages. All right, Psalm 118. Look at verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. That's Hosanna. That's what Hosanna means. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is what they're parroting, if you will, when he comes in. So this, this act, Jesus has fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy, and people are tying it to these passages from Psalm. So you can see the crowd is saying, this is it. It's time. This is going to be, we've waited hundreds and hundreds of years for it. This is going to be it. Now, of course, the Pharisees don't like the religious and the political implications of all of this. They are not happy about this at all. So they address Jesus. Look at Luke chapter 19. We're back in Luke 19. Look at how they address Jesus. Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. 
Jesus basically responds and says, you can't stop this. You, you just can't. If you could, even if you could shut up this crowd, it would not stop the truth. The truth will still happen. And so, so it's really important to understand that you can't stop the truth. We'll talk about that in a minute. You just can't stop the truth. Now, the Gospel of John gives us a little more insight into some motivations here. So keep your finger there. Go to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. This is, we, we've kept this pretty simple up until this time, but when you get into the last week of Jesus, it's back and forth through the Gospels to try to piece the whole story together. The Gospels, John, chapter 12, start in verse 17. Here's the insight that we get from John. The crowd had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. They continued to bear witness. Okay, So the people that were there when Lazarus was raised, people have still talked about that to this day. And who wouldn't? If you were there, absolutely, you'd still be talking about it. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him, meaning Jesus, was that they had heard he had done this sign. Okay, now look at verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So what's motivating the crowds? Hmm? Yes, show us a miracle. Give us a, do another magic trick. Plus, the crowds are, are beginning to believe that if this man can raise somebody from the dead, then he can actually kick the Romans out. He has the power. He has this divine, if he has the divine power to raise somebody from the dead, he has the desi- divine power to raise this nation back up out of Roman rule. So, so Lazarus is kind of like punch their ticket. If he did this for Lazarus, he can do this for us as a nation. So that's their motivation is the power that he has in raising Lazarus, he can apply to bringing Jerusalem back to a place of power. What's the motivating factor for the Pharisees? Jealousy. They're jealous. Now, their jealousy is kind of cloaked under a guise of of religious concern. And we are good at that. You know, we, we don't gossip. We're just concerned about such and such. You know, you, you've, you've been there before. You've done that. You know, I don't want to gossip, but I think this is really important for them. The, the Pharisees were jealous because they said the whole world is turning to him. And up until this point, everybody turned to them. And so it, it's just hard for them to swallow. And they cloak this under, and I don't want to badmouth them too badly because they sincerely thought that Jesus was leading the people astray. And so their concerns from their vantage point were very, very important to them. But this is the motivation. So you see you have these crowds and you have these religious leaders and, and all of these motivations are beginning to clash. And, and the Romans want peace. They want no disturbances whatsoever. And this is just like 4th of July getting ready to be lit. And, and this is what's happening. But Luke gives us something that the other Gospels don't give us. Look at verse 41. Am I right? Yeah, I'll, well, it would help if I got over back into Luke again. I'm still in John. I'm thinking, that doesn't make sense at all. Well, no, it doesn't. It's the wrong book. Luke 19, look at verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Luke's the only one that gives us this, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you 
when your enemy will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. That's a powerful statement. And, and first, Jesus, Jesus is weeping for two things here. First, he's weeping because they have no idea that the very Son of God has come among them. And that there's something greater there than political peace. There's this eternal salvation of the soul, and they don't get it. They're just looking at political peace. And they're missing the greater one. And he weeps over that. And, and sometimes we're willing to settle for less than what God wants to give us. They would, they would have settled for a political Messiah, a new king. And they would have missed out on so much more. It's kind of like the people at the crucifixion when they looked at Jesus and said, Hey, if you're really the Messiah, why don't you come on down from there? If Jesus had done that, they would have been shortchanged for all eternity. And so sometimes what we want is so much less than what God wants to give us. So Jesus weeps over the fact that they don't even recognize him and what he's come to do and how it's, how it's happening. But he weeps for a second thing. The second thing he weeps for is that what will eventually happen to the city. What will eventually happen to the city of Jerusalem? In approximately 40 years from this point, the Romans will completely decimate Jerusalem. They will not leave one stone on top of another. They will tear it down. First, they will set a siege wall around it, and they will starve them out, and then they will break it down, and they will burn it up, and there will be nothing left. And they're in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover, thinking, this is the most wonderful thing in the world. It is so great. Look at the walls. Look at the buildings. Look at our history. And Jesus is weeping because they have no idea. Just a short 40 years from now, it's all going to be gone. And don't we do the same thing? We have things in our life we're so proud of, and, and we want to guard so much, and we want to hold up and say, look at this. And just in a short 40 years, it's going to be gone. And, and sometimes I think our short-sightedness must make him weep. You know, we we covet after a new car that in about 10 years is not worth anything, right? We do this all the time. And so Jesus, we're told in Luke, he hits this place where he's just weeping and no one has a clue. Um, all right, we need to stop there. And there's a bunch, as you'll see, that we're not going to get to. We need to talk about Jesus cursing the fig tree and cleansing the temple. We'll do that next time. We need to talk about Greeks who come to ask to see Jesus. We need to talk about the message of the withered fig tree. We will get to all of that. Well, we'll get to some of that next time because we didn't get to it tonight, so I can't promise you next week either. But let's look at a few takeaways anyway. Sometimes your best work for God can paint the biggest target on your back. I mean, just get used to that. Sometimes the best work you do for God will paint the biggest target on your back. Case in point, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and Lazarus is the reason that they want to kill him. You know, it's kind of hard to believe. But really, that will happen. You know, it, if you want to see where this really happens, Facebook. Facebook is the place where all things happen. I can post what I think is some of my greatest wisdom on Facebook, and someone's going to attack it. Whatever your greatest work is, somebody will paint a target on your back for it. It's just the way it works. If it went that way for Jesus, it's sure going to be that way for us. So we shouldn't expect anything other, which means you have to stay focused on the work, not the reactions of people. Because you start focusing on the reactions of people, you'll be all over the place, up and down and right and left, and you still won't please them. All right? Another takeaway. You cannot stop the truth. You can try to stop it. You can deny it. 
You can cover it up. You can try to spin it in a different way. But the truth will eventually come out. And that's what Jesus is, what is telling them as he comes into Jerusalem and they're singing Hosanna and all this. And, and they, the Pharisees say, tell them to be quiet. And Jesus is saying, you can't stop this. You can't stop this truth. If, even if they're quiet, the rocks will cry out. Truth eventually comes out. It's just like our parents used to tell you. I, I'm going to find out one way or another, you know. Uh, I have a grandson who came home with a uh, big broken strap on his book bag. And his mother asked him, what happened? And he said, such and such a boy in my class, called him by name, took and brought a knife to school and cut it. And of course, now the parents are all riled up. We're going to go talk to the teachers. We need to get a hold of those parents. We need to... And my daughter says, let me check this out. So she goes to school and finds out that there was no boy with a knife. There was my grandson with a pair of scissors. <laughs> and, and, and before she got to school, she said, now, are you sure that this boy with the knife cut you? Absolutely, he did. I mean, he was sticking to his story. And, and he's not really a good liar, but this time he was pulling it off. And so they get to school, and she finds out the truth, and she's saying, are you sure that you didn't cut the strap on your book bag? Well, it could have been that way. I don't really remember, and this is how the story goes, you know. And so right now, that boy's at home trying to figure out how to spend his evening without his video games, right? Truth will find you out one way or another. It may take longer than you think. It may come out after you're gone, but truth has a way of coming out, whether you want it to or not. Another one. Sometimes we are willing to settle for less than what God really wants to give us. Again, the Jews were willing to settle for a political Messiah when they had the very son of the creator in front of them who was willing to give them an eternity in heaven and they would have settled for an earthly king. Sometimes when God, you've heard this old thing, story about God always answers prayers, but sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes that's the best answer you can get to a prayer. I can look back now and think, God, thank you for not answering some of those prayers. That just, that would have not been good. I would have been settling for less. And so, when you get those no's, or when you think you know what you want, make sure you're not settling for less than what God wants to give you. Make sure you're not settling for less. Um, let me give you one more, I think. And then it'll be time to go. Be willing to let God's agenda override your own. We're not good at this. We have our agenda, and what we try to do is pray to God and make our agenda his. All right? God, please give me such and such. We don't ask, do you want to give me such and such? We just want our agenda to be his, so we try to ask him to fit in with our agenda. Way too more, way more often than we try to figure out what his agenda is and fit into it. Anybody have you, any of you remember the old Henry Blackaby experiencing God studies? Yeah, some of you do. I never took that study because I didn't want to. I, I, I didn't want to follow the fad. I was just being rebellious. I don't want to. You know, everybody's doing it. I don't want to do it. Then I was kind of. But in Henry Blackaby's study, there was this statement he would always make: "Find out where God is working and go there." Rather than say, "God, I want you to work right here in my agenda," it would say. I'm going to set my agenda aside and find out what you're doing, and then I'm going to go do that. So always be careful about making sure your agenda is not overriding God's agenda. Make sure it's the other way around. Uh, all right, we need to stop there. There's a bunch of stuff we've got to cover next week, but let's stop there. Questions, comments?
If we finally got him into Jerusalem, it'd probably take us another year before we can get him to the tomb, but we'll see. There's a lot of material in that last week, especially the Gospel of John. It's a ton of material in that week. So just because we got him there don't, doesn't mean we're close to being done yet. Questions, comments? Did I confuse anybody this evening? We did a lot of jumping back and forth. Yes. Most of following Jesus is counterintuitive. Almost all of it is counterintuitive. This is bad for me to say, but there is rarely something that Jesus tells me that he wants me to do that I'm really happy about. Because it's counterintuitive to our nature. The first will be last. I don't want to be last. You know, do good to your enemies. I don't want to do good to my enemies. You know, it's counterintuitive to us. But the, but the reason is, is because God is trying to grow us up into somebody else. He's trying to grow us out of us and into somebody else. And so it starts off very counterintuitive until we begin to grow into it, and then we start to get it. And about the time we think we've got it, and then he hands us something else that we don't want to do. And that's how we grow. Someone else? I am so glad that you're here because I would not want to stand up here and teach to like nobody. <laughs> you know, that's just no fun. Uh, so I'm so glad you're here. Bring somebody with you and just, if anything, to show them how weird one of your pastors are, okay? Just bring them and let them see. Let's pray and we'll go home. Father, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for this this book we call the Bible. I'm grateful for the stories that are there, but I'm more grateful that they're not just stories, that they're instruction, that they're inspiration. I'm grateful that thousands of years later, they're still speaking, they're still teaching, because it's your word. Your spirit is guiding us into all truth, as we'll find out from John later on. God, please forgive us, though, because it's really easy for us to study this book as if it's a textbook, to increase our head knowledge and not increase our heart knowledge, to fill our heads with more facts about heaven but not get any more boots on the ground and apply it. So teach us, Father, and make us very dissatisfied with your word unapplied. Show us somewhere this week where we can apply what we've heard, what we've learned, what we've thought about. Because your word unapplied is nothing. But given the power of the Holy Spirit, the unction of the Holy Spirit, and putting our hands to a plow, your word is everything. So help us not to be receptors of your word but actors in your word. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.